Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. So today we welcome Andrew De Souza on the show, co-founder and CEO of ClearBank Now ClearCo. Andrew's had an illustrious career as a COO, a CRO, uh, and has very o- various other uh, interludes along the way, which we'll certainly get into. Um, one of the reasons we were so keen to have Andrew on the show was the way he's reinventing the investment space. Um, all you need to do is go to their homepage and see a quote from none other than Gary Venerchuk uh, saying that uh, ClearCo is a game changer. You don't need to put up your house, drown in credit cards, or give up a piece of your baby to fund ads and inventory, which is quite the accolade. So look, welcome to today's show, Andrew. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, let's kick off from the top. I mean, take us through a bit about your background, your career, your education, you know, like what brought you to this space? Because it's unusual to be, you know, kind of, investment in, in your career it's it's an, a different path so how did you end up here what were some of the points of inflection along the way if you could share with our, our listeners yeah yeah sure so I've, I've uh i've always had a bit of a nomadic life i was an immigrant you know i was uh, born in india my mom is from kenya um and moved to toronto via chicago when i was a kid so grew up outside of toronto and um ended up studying engineering uh s- systems engineering and you know i i uh I always liked how things fit together. I always liked how sort of complex systems fit and, and, you know, different domains. And that was sort of why, um, why engineering and particularly systems was, was interesting to me. Um, and I always, I thought I was going to build and design cars uh, early in my career. And, and uh, after a couple of internships at GM realized that that was probably not in my future. Um, so graduated, worked at, uh, worked at McKinsey and management consulting for a couple of years and also realized, you know, as, as interesting as that work was, Intellectually, um, I still like building things, and so fortunate enough to meet a you know fellow immigrant Canadian Waterloo graduate uh, named Chamath. Or uh, pretty early in my career, he was head of growth at Facebook at the time, back in 2010, and he sort of convinced me to move out to Silicon Valley um, just as sort of venture capital was starting to come back into the ecosystem. And uh, it was either sort of hey come come join my my team at Facebook, which might have been a more lucrative choice at the time, uh, or join this you know four-person startup that I'm uh, I'm on the board of, and so moved out to San Francisco. And you know there were a couple of things that that were interesting um, realizations for me. One was just the difference in opportunity afforded to founders and entrepreneurs who lived within sort of 50 miles or Sand Hill Road in, in Silicon Valley, uh, compared to all of my friends in Canada that were starting businesses or in Europe or in India or Asia or anywhere else in the world. And that was, you know, it was because they went to the same parties, or they'd gone to the same schools and they, they hung out in the same networks. The access to capital was so much easier. The, um, you know, the access to media and press that's associated with that and customers and talent, um, you know, and all the sort of externalities of being anointed by a Silicon Valley VC um, made their lives much easier as founders. They weren't more talented. They weren't more ambitious or hardworking. Uh, they were just, you know, they just happened to be in the right proximity. And so that from that point, you know, the idea of 
leveling the playing field for founders around the world had always been, you know, a, a subplot in my career. Okay. So tell us what it is you're doing now and what you're so passionate about. Yeah. So, so, you know, what I, what I did, what I did from, you know, from that point, I ended up moving back to Canada, um, you know, joined a couple of startups and my first job was to, to help them, um, help them scale and raise money. So I was kind of sort of like move back to Canada and then get back on a plane and, and go raise money and did that a couple of times um, and ended up being a bit of this sort of conduit um, between Silicon Valley venture and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the Canadian tech ecosystem. Um, and that's actually how I, how I ended up meeting my, my partner, Michelle, she was raising money for her past company. And, um, and I was sort of, you know, we met up and, and introduced her to, to a few, few investors um, along that journey. But a couple of things happened, you know, through that, through that process, I, I joined the company, we ended up, um, you know, they needed to raise money very quickly. So we did a sort of shotgun wedding approach, brought on a new investor. That investor had uh, very different plans for the company. And so as soon as we sort of misstepped, missed a quarter, they sort of brought in their own management team and brought in their own, their own team. And, um, and so then I came home, you know, and Michelle, so, so uh, Michelle and I had been dating for probably about four months at the time. And I came home and said, Hey, you know, I think I've lost my job. And she's like, Oh, this is great. We can go start a company now. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was interesting. We, we had thought about, do we want to start a VC fund? Um, because we both loved supporting entrepreneurs and, um, you know, investing in them. She had just joined, um, she had, so that company that she was working on, she'd sold to Groupon and just joined the cast of Dragon's Den in, in Canada uh and uh, and was investing on that show and sort of realized that the world didn't need another vc fund at the time and so we you know we um we looked at different ways of supporting founders and supporting entrepreneurs and realized that most entrepreneurs that we met probably didn't need to be giving up ownership and control at least not that early for your and not that much uh and so what we started to do was say okay well what if we could get a return um you know and get an exit without having to um, to force the business to sell or without having to take a board seat or, or equity. And so what we invented was really this category of, um, you know, performance financing, revenue financing against repeatable expenses. And so at ClearCo, what we do now is we fund you, um, you know, let's say you've got your e-commerce or software business, you're spending money on, you know, marketing and inventory or infrastructure. We will fund the repeatable expenses. So let's say you need a hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollars, hundred thousand euros for, um, for your uh, for your business um, to spend on customer acquisition. We'll fund you that. We'll take you know five percent of revenue or whatever percent of revenue makes sense based on your scale uh, until we get hundred and six back, and we can just continue to do that. And we can go anywhere from ten thousand to ten million, um, and we're working on ways to go even above that. So. So, uh, you know, those, those are the types of things that, uh, that we're, we're focused on is, is just providing alternative forms of, of financing. Um, so you don't need to give up, you know, equity or, uh, or control of your business and you don't need to give up uh, security and personal, you know, personal guarantee or anything for your business either. Um, and, uh, and now we're really starting to invest in ways of helping these companies figure out how to spend their money, um, access a network, you know, all the things that VCs do. We're just trying to use technology to do that at much, much bigger scale instead of doing that with humans who who only have you know a certain amount of experience and a certain amount of hours in the day. So Andrew, can I take take you back to your first, let's say your first 10 customers, you know, kind of mm -hmm. your, your your beta folks that you're you're testing the model because obviously you had a hypothesis originally 
yep. and you needed market validation on on the hypothesis and you know some tanked and some were validated i'm sure and then new ones come along based on the iterative process you know and kind of optimizing what you were doing but can you share with us some of the kind of some of the early days for you, you know, maybe some of the uh, infliction and some of the inflection points um, in in yeah. that uh, in that journey. It was you no, know, it was certainly a journey, um, and we looked at all kinds of different entrepreneurs. You know, in the early days, we had actually started with you know gig economy and sharing economy businesses. So we did a partnership with Uber in the very early days to fund you know Uber drivers, which were sort of micro micro businesses. I think we realized that Uber drivers couldn't use capital to really grow their business. Um, then we had done a we'd done a, um, a bunch of work in the vacation rental space with Airbnb and HomeAway, and you know that was actually interesting because you could deploy that you could actually build a you know sizable property management business on top of vacation rental platforms, but also sort of realized that that those businesses start to plateau at a certain point, and and then I think what happened was we started to meet these you know e-commerce founders, and a lot of them came from from Dragon Center. A lot of that inspiration came from the show where we were seeing these entrepreneurs from across the country who were, um, you know, selling, you know, they come on the show, they say, look, I need $100,000 for marketing, I'm willing to give up 40% of my business to, um, you know, to get that. And we, we sort of scr started scratching our heads and saying, like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And, uh, and that was sort of where we, we started to come up with this revenue share model for e-commerce. And I remember, you know, distinctly, I think our very first um, business was this military veteran uh, from Baltimore, who was, um, you know, they, he was trying to build a murder mystery, you know, subscription box and didn't know a VC, you know, didn't know how to raise money. He was really, you know, intelligent, talented guy, really passionate about what he was doing. And we started funding him and, you know, um, this is now four or five years later, but he's got a $25 million plus business that I think he owns all of and, and has continued to grow. And so we've certainly had, um, you know, some, some fantastic businesses that have, uh, that have come through, uh, from the early days. And we've got a few that'll probably go public in the next year. And, um, yeah, so we're really proud of, uh, really proud of some of those early, early businesses that, um, happen to be some of the first, the first ones that we met. Yeah, this is really cool. I'm going to stay on this uh, for a minute, if you don't mind, um, sure. specifically um, kind of what you guys do and the product. Um, when you talk about, you, you talked, you told us earlier that um, you really automate um, a, a lot of the process with respect to uh, investment, etc. You obviously have a, a different uh, means by which you invest, i.e. Um, it's not overly punitive um, for, for, for the organization that is receiving the capital by way of, you know, equity, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Is a lot of that process, the automation and stuff, is a lot of that around the due diligence process or specifically what are you automating? Yeah, so it's, it's everything from the offer to the due diligence, right? So um, if you think about the way that it typically works when you go to a VC, I think step one is, you need a warm introduction, right? The VCs rarely take cold emails because they get so much volume. And so and they, they can't process it. So they need some sort of filter. So what they use is their network as a filter. And so you need a warm introduction to a VC. Then you set up some time, you go through a pitch deck, you go through a series of pitches with, you know, maybe a junior VC, then a partner, then a, get a full partnership and they ask more questions. Um, and it's sort of, sort of a, you know, several month process from you deciding you want to go raise money to money being in your bank. Uh, if you're successful, um, if you're lucky, it's a, it's a several months process. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. exactly. It takes longer than that sometimes. 
I mean, there are people who have been raising money for years or just aren't, you know, are not, you know, they're not businesses that VCs are interested in investing in. Um, what we do is we, we sort of flip that and we say, look, let us, let us actually just make the decision on data alone. You don't need a warm introduction to us. You don't need to pitch us. Um, you literally just, you know, sign onto the website, connect your, connect your data and, uh, and you get an offer in minutes. And, um, you know, there's certainly people to talk through and the, you know, we know that the model is novel. And so people have questions and we have a, we have an investment team that will talk you through the, the offers, but you don't need to pitch them on why your business is worthwhile. Because what we believe is if you have customers and you know how to find those customers, then your business is, is worth investing in. And we don't, you know, we almost, if you think of VC as sort of a scarcity mentality to investing, we've tried to take an abundance mentality where there's certainly more than enough capital out there and we can amass as much capital as we need to, to invest in all of the good businesses out there. And um, yeah, but just because, right, just because you, you have a large um, access to a large market, and I'm sure these are all parts of your criterion, right? That it has to be a relatively big market that you're going after, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to execute effectively. How do you legislate for that? Yeah, so we look at the we look at the capital efficiency of the business. So we know you sort of say, do you have a machine where you can put a dollar in and you can get more than a dollar out? Um, okay. And and where do you put it? You know, so so we understand, you know, when you invest in in a piece of inventory, how long does that take to to sell off your website? When you invest in an ad, you know, how does that how efficiently does that ad convert? And so really, what we're trying to do is identify businesses that have have found product market fit and are are looking at sort of investing to scale. Uh, and have sort of an ups, a right side up business model, um, regardless of whether or not we, you know, agree with the products or, you know, we, we would we would purchase the products you know, ourselves. And I think this is one of the interesting things that we find, you know, we've invested in people who are building products for, you know, specific sort of diabetic or kids with, you know, uh, you know autistic children or, you know, certain skin condition. Um, we've invested in a bunch of businesses you know, for sexual wellness and sex toy companies and things. And, you know, these are all just categories that a typical VC just won't, won't invest in either because they can't relate to, or, you know, they're like, they're categories that just are off the beaten path. But, you know, for us, it's just about, are you solving a, are you, you know, are you solving a problem that people have that, and do you know how to find those people uh, in a profitable way? And if you do, you know, we're not going to pass judgment on whether you're, whether or not your business should exist. So in terms of how you, um, you've legislated for that, you've automated that, how do you find that impacts on your success rate on kind of picking winners? Don't, don't share numbers if you're not comfortable, but you know, what does that look like in your ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, because, look, the, the biggest thing is we, our business model requires, you know, 99% of the companies to be successful. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't make more than 6% on any deal. Whereas a VC, you know, you could invest in Facebook or Uber or something, and the rest of your portfolio could go to zero and you'd still return your fund several times over. And so that's really what a VC is looking for. Um, and, and so we're sort of inverted in that way where you say, look, we actually need the vast, vast majority, almost every single one of our companies to be successful um, for our business model to work. And so we do everything we can to help these companies survive, thrive, um, you know, achieve their, their objectives. And so beyond the capital, we're really starting to say, okay, well, you know, you know, maybe your return on ad spend is, is positive, or maybe your, your inventory turn cycle looks good, but you could be doing better. You know, 
here's a partner that we've seen help similar businesses like yours. Maybe it's an agency, maybe it's a piece of software, maybe it's a new channel you should be trying. Um, but we're really, you know, we're sort of in the passenger seat alongside these founders trying to help them be more successful. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You, uh, I spoke with a candidate only two days ago and she had said she's just uh, signed with you guys to start. And I was like, damn it, she got, <laughs> she got, you got there, you got, you got to her before I did, I guess, but that's great. And she was, <laughs> she was speaking incredibly highly of you and I would rate her very highly as a candidate also. Um, and she had said that you're really shaking things up. And, and, you know, what stands out for me there is, you know, 6% seems super reasonable. Um, and it seems like it's very reasonably priced money as well compared to a bank loan, right? So, you, you, you know, you, you've, it seems to me, and the way I'm reading this is, you, you know, your VC is your, your, you know, one in 10, three in 10, you know, multiples, therefore I'm covered kind of model. Your bank is a little bit of a higher interest rate. And I don't think the bank get it right that often. And they're asking for personal guarantees and all that kind of stuff. So um, how are you able to be so reasonable? And, and secondly, like, how do you stipulate what they spend the money on? Is there a breakdown there? Yeah, so we, you know, a big part of it is data, right? And so what we try and do is, is use data to mitigate our risk and identify the businesses that, you know, are working online. I think VCs, um, you know, VCs use a lot of gut and intuition. Um, and, and, and so on one, you know, if you think of sort of your capital options on one end of the spectrum, you've got equity, which is, look, I'm not, we're not anti-VC. We've obviously taken some VC, you know, along our journey. We've taken a lot more non-diluted capital in the form of sort of credit funds and things, but, um, but we've taken some equity capital and we think it's, you know, equity works really well when you're investing in things like R&D and product development. If you're, in, if you're inventing something new, if you're trying to put a rocket on Mars, if you're trying to cure a disease, if you're trying to create something that the world has never seen before and it may or may not work, equity capital is a great source of capital for that. But when you're investing in things that are repeatable, then it starts to feel very expensive. Um, on the other right, end of the spectrum, right. you've got banks and, and debt, and there's a place for debt. But it, again, it comes to, you know, banks are really in the business of loaning against assets, right? And so if you have, this is why they do mortgages very well, because your home is an asset. Um, but uh, so if you're buying, uh, you know, assets with tangible value and tangible resale value, maybe you're buying equipment or, or things that... Um, you know, that, that are easy to liquidate in case the bank calls the loan, then banks can be a very low cost of capital. The, the challenge is most online businesses don't have a lot of assets, uh, or at least not a lot of assets that banks can value, in which case they go after the personal assets of the founder uh, with a personal guarantee, which is one of the toughest, you know, most aggressive terms out there. And I think a lot of founders don't, don't necessarily recognize that. And, uh, and so what we try to do is create something that sort of sat in the middle. We don't care about the assets of the business. We're not going to come after them. We're not going to take you into bankruptcy. We're not going to go after, you know, your business or personal assets because we're really not in the business of liquidating assets from founders or people. Um, what we really care about is the future revenue potential of the business. And so um, we sort of sit in between that asset backed bank and that sort of equity, um, you know, equity upside uh, ownership where um, we've been able to use the data to figure out how likely this business is to continue to generate revenue at, a, at an increasing pace. Okay, and in, in terms of um, the types of businesses you go after, I noticed you showcased a healthy option cereal company at the uh, on your homepage there as well, which kind of- Yeah, magic food, yep. Great idea, so simple. I can't believe no one's done it yet. So for me, that sounds like a, a very repeatable model, but maybe is there a theme developing in your portfolio that you feel has naturally kind of, 
just organically developed or do you specifically feel more comfortable in a particular space in terms of those repeatable businesses? Yeah, I mean, we, we look for, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, we try and be as broad as possible, but it's really about online businesses where you find your customers online, they pay you online, you deliver your product or service online. Um, so those could be software businesses, those could be, you know, e-commerce businesses, um, you know, that we, we, we haven't been able to figure out, you know, uh, we haven't been able to help businesses that are more brick and mortar where your growth is limited to your geography. Um, you know, this is one of the things that we really help, help founders, um, think through is geographic and international expansion. How do they sell in new countries? How do they, how do they grow internationally? Um, how do they find new channels? And so, you know, a lot of those end up being e-commerce businesses. Some of the most repeatable ones certainly are consumables and subscription type businesses. So especially during the pandemic over the past year, we've seen a lot of success in, um, you know, whether those are CPG, like food and beverage, um, you know, health, health and toiletries and, and, uh, and home care type things, um, pet foods and things like that, like things that, you know, people want to find a, a product or service they like, and then they just want, want it to keep coming every week or every month. Um, those types of businesses do really well, but we also have lots of businesses that are, you know, they're selling a mattress or they're selling, um, you know, clothing. Um, we've got a lot of you know, fashion and beauty businesses. And then we've got an increasing number of, you know, B2B software companies um, and SaaS businesses as well that, uh, that sell software and services online um, and, uh, and are also just like, we don't want to, you know, we've got a repeatable model. It takes X number of months for us to break even on a new customer. And we don't want to give up more equity to VCs to, to grow faster. And so um, that's been an emerging business for us that uh, that's really starting to, to get to scale. Yeah, that's very interesting. The um, there's I, I wouldn't say it's a hidden hidden economy, but there's so many businesses that are just born online. And mm -hmm. they wouldn't be very apparent to, uh, you know, folks that would want to kind of target them or find them or, you know, some of these, it's incredible some of the names of organizations that wouldn't be household names that are doing, you know, three, 400 million in top yeah. line. It's, it's, it's insane. And um, I mean, I looked at this a few years ago because a, a friend of mine had a uh, data contextual um, uh, platform that helped organizations identify those companies. Um, they had, you know, some kind of scrape in technology and they were able to say that, um, you know, if you were a, uh, I don't know, if you, if you were a delivery um, person or you were in the merchant services business, it, it would be able to tell you that they use, you know, Stripe or MasterCard or whatever would be right. their merchant service provider. So you could go in there knowing that information, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. in terms of but but there's so many other things these people buy <laughs> and oh, yeah. yeah yeah everything from staplers to photocopiers to what oh, i don't know if people buy photocopiers anymore but all of that <laughs> kind of stuff i'm curious in terms of your your gtm um how do you find customers is it like inbound outbound you know what, what what's the biggest way that um you get in front of get your message out there get in, get in front of people because I would imagine you're intercepting people that are already on a journey that maybe have been kind of, you know, doing a, a bit of a, a Texas two-step with some, um, you know, um, seed investors or some VCs already. And then yep. kapow, you come along with your message or whatever. How, how, do, how are you getting customers? How do you find customers right now? 
Yeah, so so it's a few different channels. Um, you know, it's certainly certainly in my we we you know we've we've invested a lot in sort of building the brand and and uh, and and press, and so we get a lot of just organic sort of inbound. We do we do some inbound marketing. We have channel partners. We work with a lot of VCs actually, who you know when they meet a company that they know they're not going to invest in, or they might want to invest in, but they don't want to invest the full amount. Like they don't want their, like VCs don't want their money going into Google and Facebook ads, right. Or into inventory. They want their money going into R and D and high leverage activities. And so um, a lot of VCs will bring us into deals. Um, ad agencies are another, uh, another great channel for us. They bring us into a lot of, um, you know, a lot of companies that they know are seeing great results, but just need more budget. Um, and then we have an outbound team. So we have a team that goes and identifies these companies and we've got a research team that identifies them and, finds the ones that are growing and, and we reach out and, and, uh, and offer to help. And so, yeah, those are, those are sort of the main channels for us and um, continuing to evolve and continuing to invest in, but, uh, but yeah, we've got, uh, we've got sort of a few different, um, you know, repeatable channels that we're just starting to, just starting to scratch the surface of. Cool. I, um, I'm curious about what drives you personally, Andrew, if you don't mind me asking, um, I, I read somewhere, I, I forget where it is that, you, you were involved in some, um, what I'd, I, I wouldn't say obscure, but, I, but I'd say definitely different um, endeavor where you got on a plane with, you know, 99 other folks and came up with some <laughs> ideas, tran, transit, uh, transatlantic or whatever, you know, and um, th those kind of things, you know, are, are very, very interesting to come up with some ideas, you know, around uh, innovation and kind of solving real world problems. And which invariably you're doing here, um, and and you know adding tremendous value to to tons and tons and tons of companies uh, globally. But what drives you personally to do this? You know, is it uh, do you have a, a competitive streak? Um, um, do you do is there something lacking in your life? Do you have a big hole to fill, or you know what 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 drives you to do this? Yeah, I. Um... You know, it's interesting. I, I, I sort of just see the potential in, in people. Um, and I, you know, look, I, I, I was very fortunate. My parents took a big risk. They didn't have very, very much. And we, we lived uh, um, you know, very paycheck to paycheck in the early, early years of, of being sort of new immigrants to a new country. Um, but what did your parents I, do? What, do? what did your dad work at, by the way? My dad is an engineer. Um, okay. My dad's an engineer. My mom is a teacher. Um, and so, so, you know, I, uh, I was, you know, so I learned, I learned a lot, actually. Um, I, I think I'm a, a pretty good blend of both of them. Uh, my mom is one of these people who, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store and she'll, she'll chat up sort of half the store by the time you're out of, the, out of there and, uh, and love sort of making these connections. And, um, and my dad is very methodical and very sort of structured and rigid and, and, uh, and, 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 a, and an excellent sort of um, structured problem solver. Um, but, you know, I think, I think I, re I think about sort of the different paths my life could have taken, um, you know, if I wasn't exposed to certain opportunities. Uh, and I sort of realized that there are probably million, maybe billions of people that, that sort of live in the same, you know, in the same situation where they've got sort of talent and ambition, work ethic, uh, and they're just never going to be exposed to that level of opportunity. And I think there's this untapped, latent entrepreneurial energy that, you know, there could be another hundred thousand Elon Musks in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Or, or in Southeast Asia that, um, that could solve major, major world problems. And we'll just never hear from them. 
um right and and you know with with a little I think bit of one right, elon I, musk is enough for the planet at the moment <laughs> maybe <but. laughs> maybe that's right maybe that's right but do you know what i mean like i think that if you think about the way that humanity's biggest problems are going to be solved it's probably not going to be court you know it's not going to be the g8 coming together and saying hey we're going to try and solve climate change they'll never get along we're going to try and solve aging or you know uh, war or disease whatever like it's going to be entrepreneurs that have a creative vision that are willing to take some risk and um and i think that you know if 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 it can only be the people who are in certain circles um who have figured out this sort of venture capital private equity game who have a shot at doing that then i think we're missing out on um a lot of advancement for for humanity and so you know i think that's that's probably what drives me um the most is just you know is there a way for us to do this and do this at a scale that's never been thought of to fund you know, a million founders around the world and give them the support and resources that they would if they were backed by a Sequoia uh, or an Andreessen Horowitz or something um, and, and give them a shot at actually sort of creating the world that they, that they, um, that they set out to. Love it. Power to the people. Um, I, and I believe you too. <laughs> the, the, um, the, you know, if you don't mind me saying that, 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 that was hugely authentic. And, um, you know, I, I, um, because honestly, we, we, um, we have all kinds of folks on the show and I talk to all kinds of people every day, you know, and, um, I think about 75% of them are authentic to be honest with you, you know, but, um, yeah, I, I really heard you on that. And, um, what, what a noble endeavor, um, you know, hat tip to you, sir, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm not, you know, right. it's not, and making not some money, here. I would wager too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enjoyable work. Uh, it's rewarding work. I'm, I'm having a blast. I love my team. Um, we get to, we get to sort of try and invent the future, or at least um, set up the infrastructure for the people who are going to invent the future. So I'm, um, you know, don't, don't shed any tears for me on it. It's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Cool. Cool. The, the, um, so, so someone in, in, in your position um, as a leader and, and you know, in, in essence, um, that, that is what you are really, you know, um, and a damn good one by the looks of things, you know. So for us, our, our general feeling and uh, uh, as unbiased as, as we can be here, uh, our general feeling is we feel the number one most important thing a leader can do is hire the right people. And if that's the only thing you do right, then everything else is easier. Um, tell us a little bit about how you hire or assemble your teams. Yeah, I could I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, we that I feel like my job is to hire hire people who are much better than me, and then and then just sort of get out of their way. Um, but but yeah, I it's been interesting because because of our mission and because of the you know the, the impact that we're aiming to have, <clears throat> the type of people that come are attracted to the company are entrepreneurial people. Um, many people, I mean, almost everybody has their own founder story. You know, they started a business, maybe they started, you know, a lemonade stand or they started a, um, you know, one of our team members started like a, a hair extension business in high school selling to her friends and, you know, but everybody's got their, or they come from an entrepreneurial family or they have ambitions of starting a business. So, you know, we've got, we're about 330 people now. And so um, you put 330 founders into a room and try and get them to all point in the same direction. And, um, and that a little bit of chaos ensues. Uh, but, but, you know, I think it's because many, many people have, have seen the struggle of being an outsider, trying to, trying to create the future, trying to, trying to create something. And, and, um, 
the mission really resonates with them. Um, we've got a lot of people who who come to ClearCo and and with the intention of leaving and starting a business. And you know, in almost every case, it's probably happened now ten times now. And almost every case, we've invested in them um, and and tried to set them up uh, to go. And so you know, there's almost this sort of couple of year tour of duty that people come in for and then they're like well i'm going to go start my own business and we're like this is fantastic because we want to go create more founders in the world um and so you know that, that's been a lot of the culture has been very entrepreneurial um we try and eliminate a lot of bureaucracy we try a lot of things not all of them work um but uh but you know fortunately enough we're resourced enough to you know resource well enough to be able to try many things and and every so often something um really compelling hits and and we double down on it and uh and that's you know that's been sort of the the culture we've tried to to convey and um and and still I I have to admit I am I'm still figuring out and if you have any advice on Zoom leadership and remote leadership that that is something that was never in my toolkit um, as a leader I think I'm you know I I I, uh, I much prefer being in front of a team and 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 you know at, a, at company retreats and things like that talking about the mission than trying to do it over Zoom but. Um, we've had to adapt and figure that out and and the ability to hire amazing talent from every corner of the world has certainly um has has offset my uh my uh lack of effectiveness over over a remote screen but uh but that's been one of the biggest challenges really is maintaining that culture we had a, we had an incredible energy in our office every day and we've we've sort of been missing that for the last year and a bit since we've gone remote I think there's a book in that, Andrew, and I think it's probably being written by somebody right now as we speak, you know, effective Zoom leadership for the uh, growing uh, startup or uh, budding entrepreneur. I think I think that's definitely, that's certainly a blog article. I'd be certain of that, if not a book in the making. Um, and one of the other kind of profound things that struck me there is how do you create an incubator effectively and encourage an entrepreneur? Well, the first thing you do is hire them into your company, sounds like, uh, as the way to go. Uh, which is a very kind of reverse engineered or a flipping on its head type of model, which it was exciting. And one of the things I wanted to focus on as well if from a hiring perspective is um, your growth and your international expansion. So we would work with a lot of folks who are growing and EMEA seems to be the first place you go to. It's the world's largest market in the European Union, et cetera. And we've covered this topic on multiple shows in the past. Um, but just before we started recording here, Andrew, we were chatting around um, location right and you guys have chosen Dublin through no influence of our own whatsoever you know as I said before we started we're relatively agnostic but we are somewhat patriotic in that regard so you know we've listed out some of the top European locations set up shop but I'm curious to know your journey and why you picked Dublin if you could share yeah I you know the last uh, the last trip I took before the pandemic was we looked at uh, Dublin Amsterdam London um, you know, London was London was a challenge just because they were exiting the European Union, and uh, and so you know, we, we, Dublin was great because it was you know the only English speaking country uh, in in the EU, and and uh, and we got some great sort of uh, we got a great tour from um, from the IDA, and and uh, and sort of understood sort of how other tech companies had done this and you know there's a great group of talent both in sales and in engineering and product um to to tap into a lot of people you know want to want to move from other parts of europe um to ireland and so so that was that was very appealing um the other thing though is that we thought we were going to have one sort of 
central European hub, and I don't think we need to anymore. And so we are also hiring people in the Netherlands. We're also, you know, we're, we will likely hire people across Europe um, over the course of the next 12 months, because we also see the value in having, you know, local language speaking, and you can get, I mean, the nice thing is you can also get almost every major European language, um, you know, proficiency in, in, uh, in Dublin. Um, but we also see value in having people on the ground in, in key markets as, as sort of things start to get maybe not quite back to normal and in person, but a little bit more. Um, and so we will be hiring, um, you know, we'll be hiring across Europe, but, uh, but, but as our sort of, you know, primary hub, um, it's looking to be Dublin for, uh, for the, for the foreseeable future. And so, um, you know, it's, it's spending time there. It's been, a, it, it was just, a, it was a fantastic uh, experience and you could feel sort of the entrepreneurial energy there and, and the talent, the ambition that, um, you know, that the, the people, uh, that people experience every day. That's great to hear that you had that experience and um, testament to the IDA who we had on the show at the beginning of this season. So um, all credit to them. And I know that the, the rules are going to be, um, the jury's still out on the new rule book from a global tax perspective that the G7 are agreeing right now at a flat 15%, which is only two and a half above our, our baseline rate, but um, or a headline rate, should I say. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the talent and the track record as well speak volumes. You've got this ecosystem of folks who are already here, as you rightly said, the languages are also here as well. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, as you expand internationally, what do you find are the nuances when you're approaching maybe European businesses or even businesses in APAC? by way of, you know, their kind of setup, maybe their culture as well. And, and I know you spoke really at the beginning of the show, having spent time in Silicon Valley, it's just the ecosystem there and the access to capital is more plentiful. Like, what do you think is going to be different in Europe as you um, establish and grow your footprint here too, if you could share? Yeah, I think that, I think what happens in Europe is, you know, it's just a different, different venture capital market, different banking markets. So the alternatives that exist for founders look very different. Um, and you're starting to see, you know, I think some European investors move a little bit slowly. They're a little bit more hesitant. And so founders are used to a little bit more of a measured approach in, in coming up with, you know, and deciding how they want to capitalize their business. They may not be used to somebody moving as quickly as, as we do, certainly. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of that cultural nuance um, that, that we're coming across. I think there's certainly some skepticism around international companies coming into Europe. And, um, and so we do want to, we want to have, you know, local organizations, local talent, local partners. Um, that's another big thing for us is working with, um, working with companies. And look, I mean, we don't think of ourselves as a Canadian or an American company. I mean, we've always, we've always thought of ourselves as a global company. And this is one of the things about being Canadian is like, you know, our, our team probably speaks, you know, 50 different languages and, uh, and comes from, you know, I'd say less than, less than 50% of our team was probably born in, in North America. And so um, we, we've always operated as a global company. Um, we just happen to have the majority of the team located in Canada. And so, you know, hopefully that, that cultural sensitivity comes across, whether you're talking to somebody in, you know, Canada or Dublin or London or, you know, Singapore. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's one of the things. There's also some, some strange nuances uh, we started to uncover. Like there's, there's countries in Asia where, equity investments come with personal guarantees. And so, you know, if your business fails, they come after your, your, your own personal assets, your family's assets, like it's, um, it can get pretty ugly. And so there's a lot of skepticism around how investors work um, in different countries. And so, 
you know, I think what we're trying to do is rewrite the rules and and say like, you know, this is this is sort of a new world. Um, we're going to have to probably break a bunch of stereotypes around how investors partner with founders in different countries and and what that dynamic looks like. Um, the idea of you know founders being in control of their own companies when they take on external investment is novel in a lot of countries. And so, um, you know, it's it's uh, it'll be a journey, but I think it's one that's that's worth us uh, worth us pursuing. Yeah, you're definitely uh, pushing some open doors, and and you will be um, in in this jurisdiction anyway. I can I can um, I can absolutely um, guarantee you that. Um, what's the out of curiosity? What's your um, what's an average kind of sales cycle length um, for you guys? Um, to me, it, it would seem that you can get information fairly instantaneously. So, I mean, is it thirty days, sixty days, ninety days longer? Oh yeah, it's it's relatively short. It's a matter of weeks. I mean, we can you know again we we get an offer in front of people in minutes. And then it's just about sort of helping them understand that, you know, if they have other investors or other shareholders, they've got to sort of talk it through with, but, um, but usually it's, it's, you know, a few weeks um, is, is when people need, need to make a decision. Wow. So, so, so you're um, in terms of velocity, it's, it's kind of a high velocity motion and, and um, which means um, you guys can, in that land grab, you can, you can certainly, um, you can certainly um, move fairly swiftly. Do you have any competition um, in this space, Andrew? Yeah, Andrew? we've we've seen. Um, you know, it's been like flattering for sure. We've seen. Um, you know, since we since we launched uh, a number of you know uh, similar companies that are that are trying to tackle you know individual markets pop up right. So it's the Clearco of you know the UK or of Latin America or of uh, India and things. So um, we've certainly seen people sort of replicate the model. Um, and that's awesome. You know, it's, it's, it's flat more options for founders is better. Um, more people sort of, you know, it's not an industry until you've got different people doing it. Um, I do think that there is advantage to scale both in terms of, you know, access to capital, like we can grow with companies indefinitely. Um, we've got more data to be able to help these companies make better decisions and, and we've got sort of a global network. So, you know, I think as companies start to think about themselves expanding out of that one jurisdiction, um, we end up being a really good partner to help them grow sort of globally wherever they want to. Brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's a concept I learned. Uh, I think I was about eight years of age when my father was saying um, it was a very busy street where we lived and there was, um, I think there was some burger joint and, you know, he, he was saying, well, if, if you open a burger joint, where, where would you open? And I said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd put it miles away from that place. And he said, why would you not put it right beside it? And um, the logic then kind of the penny dropped with me that if, if you have the footfall and you have the market, um, it's an absolutely obvious place to put it <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. be guaranteed that if one place is busy, other people will be coming into your place and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but look, as we round the corner here, and, and honestly, I can't believe we're, we're 50 minutes into this podcast already because genuinely... Um, you're a pleasure. You're a pleasure to. Um, you're a pleasure to talk with Andrew, and we could go another hour here easily. But as we round the corner, um, can I ask you what you feel your superpower is? What, what, what do you bring to the table that is um, that that um, I suppose is is amplified more than all of your other abilities? I'm sure you have a ton of abilities, um, uh, and 
uh, one of them not being um, your, your your ability to lead on Zoom, but <laughs> yeah. apart from that, what, what's your superpower? You know, would it be around kind of, um, you know, uh, building teams and people? Would it be around the, the product kind of engineering or, you know, is it commercially focused or operationally focused or whatever? Yeah, I, you know, look, I, I have I certainly have many shortcomings. Um, you know, I, I'd say I'd say one of the one of the things that I probably do better than most is um, I make these sort of non-obvious connections, um, and I do that often with people, but sometimes with products as well. And it's it's this idea of you know you you meet somebody, and you see something, you hear something about them, you see something about them, and you sort of you know it may not be on their resume, uh, or it may not be on their career history, may not even be on the job that they're applying for, but you sort of see well actually they might be a better fit somewhere else. And so so many times we've moved people. You know, we moved one of our salespeople into, a, you know, a recruiting and talent role, and she absolutely, you know, destroyed it. We moved, we moved somebody uh, from a revenue operations role into a learning and development role, and again, she's, you know, outstanding. Um, I moved our general counsel into kind of a core operational role, and and he's excelling, um, you know, incredibly well. And so, you know, I think this is, that's one of the things that, um, and maybe it's the combination of systems engineering where you sort of put pieces together. Probably comes a lot from my mom who who remembers things about like obscure facts about people uh, and brings them up, you know, years later um, when she's looking for a gift or something. So, um, you know, that's one of the things my brain just sort of works in that way to, to meet somebody, see or hear something about them and sort of find like, hey, there could be something interesting for you to do in this, you know, in this realm. Um, and every so often that, that works its way into product as well, you know, it's sort of like, Hey, you know, did we ever think about, uh, about putting these two, you know, this piece of software and this piece of capital together and, you know, uh, into this novel way. So, um, so every so often that, that, that comes, you know, in, into the product creative process as well, but I'd say most, it mostly comes into the people in the organizational development side. I uh, wanted to uh, just finish out uh, by thanking you um, for all of what you've covered today. But before we do that, um, how does a man like you relax and switch your brain off? Because it sounds like you're never not busy. Um, I'm trying to be less busy. Uh, I think if I do my job right and I've got the right people, I, I can have more unstructured time to, to sort of think and spend time with my team. I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't achieved it yet. but. Um, Look, I mean, I I, uh, I try and play a bunch of sports. I play a lot of basketball and soccer, and you know, when I when I have the chance, I I, I play a little bit of music. I, I uh, since I've been traveling, I've been I, have, I bought a ukulele, and so I've been uh, I've been learning a couple songs in the ukulele. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I I love what I do. I end up I end up doing a lot of just like long walks and like listening to podcasts or dropping voice notes to my team along that and things. And so you know, it may not be fully unplugging from work, but it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, less structured um, and more, you know, more creative, uh, more creative time. And so, um, you know, that's one of the advantages of being remote. I try and spend as much time as I can outdoors. Uh, I would, I would be outdoors in this, in this, doing this podcast if there wasn't too much background noise, but um, that's been one of my, uh, that's been one of my, my solaces for sure. Well, it's good to hear that you do try and take uh, some downtime um, to recharge, as it were. But look, I, I really want to thank you. It's been an incredibly unique episode to cover a topic we've not been exposed to before. And uh, what I will say is our commitment to you is that the Guinness is on us when you do uh, set foot in Dublin once again. 
I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, thank you very much. This is a lot of fun too. I, I, you guys had a unique set of questions and dug into a lot of things. Um, so I, I appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, we, we heard it. The Guinness is on Ross. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, look, this is um, undoubtedly a rocket ship. Um, we're, we're humbled and honored to have you on the show and to uh, for our listeners to kind of understand what you do and hear about you personally and, and your, your growth story. And uh, if it's okay with you, we might, uh, we might have you uh, back on the show at some stage to uh, update us on your progress. Yeah, no, I'd love that. I'd love that. Maybe we could even do it in, in person next time I'm in, uh, I'm in Dublin. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that'd, that'd be super. Okay, be well, be safe, Andrew. Thank you. All right, thanks so much. Great to connect with all of you. Take care, Ross, John. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.